Yes, ladies and gentlemen, thank you once again for joining us at INC Live and welcome to yet another of our preview shows, this one for UFC 266. My name is Carl Bimage and I am joined as ever by the man on the right hand side of my screen. He is the conspiracy to my theory, he is the Brian Campbell to my Luke Thomas, he's John Martian MMA. John, thank you once again for joining us. What's up, Carl? What's up, INC Live listeners? Thanks for having me back. Uh, we're back to analyze another pay-per-view, 266 going down this Saturday. Volkanovski versus Ortega is finally going to happen after a long-awaited uh, wait for that one. Uh, Nick Diaz is making his return, and it's not the strongest pay-per-view from top to bottom, um, but you know it's hard to complain when we got 267 and 268 at the end of the month or in about you know six weeks or something like that because those are two insane pay-per-views so this pay-per-view is looking a little weak compared to the next two but uh, it's still a good card i'm looking forward to analyzing it over the next hour two preview shows in two weeks coming up next month are you going to be able to handle that one john yeah i think so i think we'll be able to work our schedules out for that one for sure and if you would like to uh, continue joining us and supporting the channel, you can do so uh, at patreon.com forward slash it's not cage fighting. All of your donations go towards trying to make this video as good as it possibly can. As you can see with the new microphone, that was thanks to you guys helping to pay for that one. So a big thank you for that. Uh, also like, share, subscribe because it really helps the algorithm. And if you would like to support John in any way, John, where is the best place for people to find you? So I make the Martian MMA podcast, also have, you know, kind of a co-host that I've been working with lately, my homie Ozzy. So you can find the the Martian and Ozzy podcast on YouTube, SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes to search up Martian and Ozzy or Martian MMA. And you can also follow me on Twitter at UFO underscore UFC. Uh, before we actually get on to talking about UFC 266, obviously we have been able to do the recap show because this video takes priority. But we will take a little bit of an opportunity to talk about some elements of last night's fight card. Now, there's always been a lot of people who've been quite dismissive of Anthony Smith's skills as a light heavyweight. Was the win over Ryan Spann last night the wake-up call to make people think this guy is worthy of the recognition and the praise at 205? You know, I wouldn't go as far to say that, you know, that fight alone kind of woke people up because I do consider Span kind of a fringe top 15 uh, opponent. I think the win over Jimmy Crute in his last fight was more impressive. But I think it definitely did go a long way for Anthony Smith, solidifying that there's a big gap between him and, you know, the the, the top seven, the top. You know, 7 through 15, they have a long way to go before they can beat Anthony Smith because he is a very well-rounded fighter. He was throwing hands, landing really well on Ryan Spann early, and then took him down and was able to submit him as well, proving how well-rounded he is. So it was a nice win from Anthony Smith, and, uh, you know, he's kind of growing on me over the past few fights. Uh, he's put together some good performances. I'm telling you, all that bulldozing from me, seeing how good Anthony Smith is, it's finally paying off, John. It has to be. I think you're the only reason, I'd say. Well, Luke Thomas has been a big supporter of him for a long time as well. I think he sort of got him in his boy stable, if you ever follow OSW. No, I don't. But uh, Luke Thomas uh, has blocked me on Twitter, so uh, <laughs> I don't I don't support him that much. How did you manage I do like the guy overall still. I, I think I I think I said something like basketball is boring or something like that, and he blocked me. So I'm sorry, Luke. <laughs> Was there anybody else who stood out for you on that card apart from the main event? 
Um, bald Eon Kudalaba, man. This guy is going to be a problem. Maybe they should do Kudalaba versus Smith next, honestly. Um, but uh, Eon Kudalaba put together three rounds of cardio last night. Looked pretty good over the entire fight. Um, Armand Sarukin got a nice round one finish. I think his first UFC finish. And uh, your girl, Rocky Raquel Pennington, got off to a rocky round one start, but then came back really well in rounds two and three. Um, so that was nice to see. I'm sure you were ecstatic about that. In some ways, yes. Obviously, I am a big Raquel Pennington fan. She's sort of part of my stable, if you put it that way. But I'm sort of in two minds because I do like Raquel Pennington. But we've talked many times about how weak women's bantamweight is. So someone like Pani Kianzad, who... She would have won five in a row had she got the win over Raquel. And Raquel, you've got to remember, was in the top five before she got taken out for the suspension. So that's a win over what's basically a top five opponent. So Pani could have been sort of like, I'm not going to say like a title contender, but around that sort of Ketlin Vieira sort of range where she's sort of a dark horse pick. Because women's bantamweight needs as many strong names as it can because it, it's a weak division. And as much as I do like Raquel Pennington, Maybe giving way for a new guard, a new generation of fighter would have been the better results in the long term. I mean, maybe, but Penny has, has nothing for Nunez. I mean, she has. I I do like Penny. You know, she is a decent boxer, um, but she's just so flawed. I mean, last night, like the way she was backing up to the cage. I mean, yes. anytime Raquel took a step forward, she had no idea how to angle off, circle off the cage. She just backed up in a straight line to the fence and. Um, you know, without having a bet on that fight, I mean, that must have been brutal to watch. I mean, that fight was terrible. They were it, it seemed like they had magnets attached to their clothing and to this to the uh, to the cage. You know, it's like every time the fight started, they just moved to the side of the cage naturally. I'm like, what are we what are we doing here? And then the, the rounds for five minutes would then be just trading position against the cage. I mean, brutal fight to watch, but uh, I was definitely happy uh, Raquel got the win. And the frustrating thing is, is. When Rocky Pennington has the opportunity to show her boxing, she can be fairly solid. Look at that first round when she fought Irene Aldana. She, her boxing was fantastic in that fight. She just seems to have this tendency, as you mentioned, to just go for the clinch and just dirty box and try and throw in a couple of knees and make it that sort of grimy fight, which isn't really all that enjoyable to watch. Yeah, but she did do well throwing hands last night, too. You know, when when it was time to break away at distance and throw punches, she was doing that. She was attacking with knees and elbows in the clinch. So her striking output was was solid last night and, you know, it was a nice win for her. So uh, I agree. I'm glad to see that happen, even though it, even though we did have to see Penny lose the win streak. I could spend this entire hour talking about Rocky Pennington, but we're instead <laughs> going to be talking about UFC 266 because... As you mentioned, sort of in passing there, we have got some great pay-per-view headliners coming up over the next couple of weeks. Pay-per-view cards in general. Like, obviously, 267 and 268 taking place on successive weeks. 269 is shaking up very well. Three title fights. All indications seem to point towards Temporia fighting Charles Oliveira as the main event on that card. And as a result, it almost seems like 266 has sort of been a bit lost in the shuffle. Like, it doesn't really have as big of a main event. Um, I don't p think people feel that the flyweight title fight is going to be all that competitive. Yes, you've got Nick Diaz on the card, but there's a lot of question marks about that one, which we'll get to. Is 266 sort of getting the shaft? Oh, for sure. I mean, 
we don't want to be too negative on the show, even though we do kind of criticize these pay-per-views a lot, probably more often than not, to be honest, Carl. Um, but you know, we're not, we're not just complaining for the sake of doing it here. You know, we're, we're actually analyzing these fights on a, on a, on a pretty high level and, you know, we have the right to complain and, these top like six fights on this card, I'm excluding Dan Hooker and Nasrat Hackbrash because it doesn't seem like that fight's going to happen. Hooker's having trouble getting over um, to America from New Zealand. But these top six fights, I just feel they're kind of meaningless. I feel like they don't really go anywhere. I feel like there's not they're not really the type of fights that you're really anticipating seeing. If we're starting at the bottom with Marais and uh, Marab, um, I guess it's nice to see Marab get a step up in competition. But Marais has looked so uninspiring lately. Um, I don't think Calvillo is going to have much for Andrade. And those women are stuck in the the 125-pound weight class. Um, Blades versus Rosenstrike, the most binary matchup ever. Rosenstrike doesn't know what wrestling is. That fight's probably going to be a slaughter. Two really old guys, 17-year rematch. I guess that's a fun little gimmick. But, um, you know, these guys are really old, really past their primes. Um, Shevchenko is probably going to be another smash match, uh, a squash match, as you're familiar with that term from pro wrestling versus Murphy. And then Volkanovski versus Ortega. It's a good matchup. It's probably the best fight on the card. But, you know, you just don't get that exciting feeling about it. You're not you don't have that feeling like something crazy is going to happen. It's just kind of, you know, a fight, a matchup. What do you feel? Do you feel similar to to I do uh, these matchups, Carl? In some ways, yes. I think that we've got a lot of star power. We've got a lot of fighters who on their day can be very entertaining to watch. But as you mentioned before, I don't really see outside of the main event. I don't really see all that many of the fights being all that competitive. And I think when you, yep. when you have a situation like that, you just sort of think to yourself, obviously I'm going to watch the card because I'm a big fan and I enjoy watching mixed martial arts. But can I really say that I'm going to get that sort of back and forth momentum, the sort of wild slugfest and the real five-star matchups that you, you're willing to pay money for. And the truth is, I look at the five fight main card and I don't really see that. We'll discuss those fights in a lot more detail though. For now though, we're going to be talking about the prelims. You sort of touched on some of them there. We've got them on your screen right now. Now this card is subject to change. So as you mentioned before, Dan Hooker, a lot of question marks over whether or not he's going to be able to actually get into America for the fight. Uh, the big fight that I'm focusing on, though, when it comes to the prelims, though, is the ESPN headliner. Now, if we go back to June 2018, Marlon Marais was, by a long way, the informed guy in the bantamweight division. He was coming off, like, three first-round finishes in a row, knocked out Aljamain Sterling in something like 90 seconds. And when he went into that fight against Henry Cejudo for the title, a lot of people had him as the favourite. Since then, he's only won one fight out of his past four, that being a controversial win against Jose Aldo, which many people thought that he'd lost. And now he's taking on a guy in Marab Devalishvili, who, myself included, think has a very high ceiling in this weight class. Yeah, so Marais definitely has taken a turn for the worse. I've always kind of thought that the guy left his best years in the World Series of Fighting. He did have a little bit of success when he first came over to the UFC, but a lot of that success was predicated on on quick finishes. Um, you know, he had two split decisions against Asun Tao and Dodson, three quick finishes, and people were really high on him versus Cejudo, but he kind of has... Uh, you know, declined since then. He's taken a lot of damage. I mean, Cejudo put an absolute beating on him. Uh, Sanhagen dropped him a few times, knocked him out. Rafant did the same. 
And I think Marais's chin is just not the same. I mean, if you watch the the Rob Font fight, he he comes out in that fight, he gets a takedown right away, he gets some top position, and then they get back up to the feet, and and Marais's head is just not moving, man. It's it's very static. It's staying in the same spot. He's not seeing the punches coming. And Rob Font was just teeing off on his head uh, right when the fight got to distance. I just don't think the guy can really react to the punches coming his way anymore. Um, it's not really too relevant for this matchup because he's not fighting a big puncher. He's fighting a wrestler in Marab. And it's going to be interesting because he has looked pretty bad against strikers like Sanhagen and Font. But those are high-level strikers. You're facing a high-level wrestler now. It's a whole different matchup. I mean... It's hard to find a lot of footage of Marias facing takedowns out there. He's not a guy who faces many wrestlers. You're going to have to go back to watch the John Dodson fight. Uh, I think Cejudo maybe landed a takedown on him, but there's really not a whole lot of footage on his defensive wrestling out there. So you kind of have to take a bit of a leap on this one to think how the fight's going to go. But the betting... Uh, the betting market is pretty confident in Marab Duvalishvili. They have him uh, about 70% in this matchup. So it seems like a lot of people are thinking along the same lines that Marias is just kind of past his prime, possibly shot, and just doesn't have it anymore, and that reflects in the odds. So do you think those odds are right? Do you think they're maybe a little wide, 70% for Marab, Carl? I, I think that's around about right for my opinion because I'm very high on Marab. I think I have been ever since. Well, personally, we obviously we saw what happened when he fought Ricky Simone. But people forget that Mirab was controlling that fight until the final 30 seconds and we had that bizarre finish. I think the guy's conditioning is absolutely fantastic. The persistence in getting these takedowns. Now that might be a bit of a concern that he has to get so many takedowns because he can't get people down. So I'm interested to see what Mariah's scrambling ability is going to be like. But the one thing I, I don't really feel... But the one thing you you always need to have in your back pocket in any weight class is a good grappling game. And Marab has one of the best in this weight class. I've been very high on him for a long, long time. And I'm glad he's getting this sort of jumping quality. Yeah. And it, and it kind of makes you think, how is Marais going to win? Because Marab is an output machine, right? He puts up you know, 15 takedowns a fight. He's constantly coming forward. It is almost impossible to win rounds against Marab Davalashvili because he's just a constant output guy. So Marais is going to have a hard time winning rounds. He's probably going to have to finish Marab. And Marab is known for being one of the most durable guys on the roster. I mean, this guy is almost impossible to hurt with punches. So, I mean, Marais is probably going to have to land that clean, clean head kick knockout type of strike to win the fight because I just don't see him having many other paths to victory. Maybe that guillotine. He's got a decent guillotine to submit Marab. Uh, but I think Marais is finisher bust here. Any other prelims that you're looking forward to, Carl? There's two names on the actual fight pass portion of the prelims, which I'm very interested in. Uh, and the first one is the guy who's headlining the prelims, which is Uros Medic. Like we talked about this guy, UFC 259, and said, if there's one guy you need to keep an eye out for, it's this one. We saw him on the Contender Series, looked very good there, dominated his UFC debut. And now he's back again up against Jalen Turner. I've, I've got very high hopes for the doctor. Yeah, Medic is definitely a cool prospect. Um, the guy hasn't really been tested in his, in his grappling, but his striking looks fantastic so far. So I'm excited to see where he goes. What caught my eye on the pay-per-view or the, the prelim card is uh, Martin Sano and Nick Maximov, two new names you might not recognize. These guys are both good friends with Nick Diaz, and it seems like... Um, 
Maximov might have already been on his way in the UFC. I think he was on the contender series. He was kind of already trending towards the UFC. But Martin Sano is a guy who's getting into the UFC purely off of a favor by Nick Diaz. This guy hasn't fought in five or six years, doesn't have a good record. And it just kind of is funny to me that, that Nick Diaz is on this card. and He's like, oh, yeah, I'm bringing my boy along with me. And then the UFC is like, oh, is he, is he good at fighting? Has he fought recently? Nick's like, nah, nah, but he's coming along with me. Like, there's nothing you can do about it. So they gave him a matchup. Um, he's probably going to lose that fight, but it's funny that he's even on the card. I seem to remember them doing that with one of uh, Nate's training partners, a USC 202. I remember one of them fighting against Lobov. Yeah, Chris Avila. Chris Avila, yeah. They also did a way, way back in the day with um, Anderson Silva and... Um, Marcus Mariano, some some guy he used to train with back at uh, UFC 234. Um, but yeah, Sano is, hasn't won a fight since 2014. Um, so, you know, interesting decision to say the least. Although that is more recently than when Nick Diaz last won a fight. That's true. Very relevant, you know. <laughs> Before we get onto the main card itself, though, can we also ask this question? Did Roxanne Modafferi do something really bad to Sean Shelby and McMaynard? Because her Great versus question, Tyler man. Santos, that is a cruel, cruel fight. After after a series of cruel matchups in a row, I mean, she just fought uh, Viviana Araujo. You know, that was kind of tough. Um, I guess she did pick up that nice win over Andrew Lee. But, I mean, yeah, I agree with you. I mean, what are they feeding her these, these you know, damaging women for? I mean, can we get Roxanne an easy fight? Can we see Roxanne where she's not a 3-1 to one underdog? I mean, come on. That being said, though, we all saw what happened against Macy Barber. True, for sure. Uh, but I think going back on the odds, right, uh, the last time Roxanne was in a close fight odds-wise was Laura Murphy. She has been the 2-1 to one or 3-1 to one underdog in her past three fights. So I'd say they give her a break sometime soon. And we're going to be staying with the women's flyweight division because that is the first fight which is opening the card is in the flyweight division. It's former title challenger Jessica Andrade taking on somebody who hopes to be fighting for the flyweight title soon in the form of Cynthia Calvillo. Um, bookmakers odds for this one they have Andrade as a minus 280 favorite you can get Calvillo at plus 230 um, obviously we saw what happened to Jessica Andrade at USC 261 a lot of people maybe had her down as sort of a sort of like if you had say like five dollars hanging around just put a quick punt on Andrade maybe she might get it done because she's such a powerful striker it was a very very one-sided performance and bearing in mind what happened against Shevchenko last time around and bearing in mind that you're going to be looking at another four or five wins to get back into contention. Are you surprised Andrade is staying at flyweight? I would say no, because um, first off, I was definitely in the category that thought Andrade could have a chance. Um, I don't think any woman at 125 has the skill level to compete with Valentina. So I thought the best case scenario is the best athlete at the weight class might have a, a chance to make the fight close, but nope, uh, not at all. Um, Andrade was brutally beaten in that fight. But I do agree with her staying at 125 because you got to look at the, Ch the Chukagian fight. Sorry, I just had like an aneurysm there. But um, the Chukagian fight, uh, Chukagian was actually fighting pretty well against Andrade, was landing some good strikes in the clinch. And it was a close round, but I thought Chukagian was on her way to winning it. And then just like one body punch from Andrade just changed the fight completely and got the TKO for Andrade. And it's just she's such an 
athletic beast, that powerhouse, that her margins at this 125-pound weight class are huge, that she can be losing a fight, but land one punch and the fight sways the entire way in her direction. So I think her power translates up really well to this weight class and fighting another former 115 um, fighter in Calvillo here is another favorable matchup. Uh, I'll give you a chance to give your thoughts on how this this fight plays out. What are your thoughts uh, on this one? Someone made a really good comparison with Jessica Andrade. Now, it's a bit left field when you first hear it, but I can sort of see where they're coming from. Andrade, in a lot of ways, is very similar to Edson Barboza. Not so much in the way they fight, but in how they're perceived. Because we've seen Andrade lose a lot of fights. And the template of how to beat her has been pretty well tread. You've got to be sort of a rangy striker who stays on the outside and just peppers her with shots over and over. And yet, despite that, there's still this sort of mystique and this aura that comes with facing Andrade. She's still a feared fighter in any weight class, whether that's strawweight or in flyweight. In terms of how I see this going, the thing is, that template of being that sort of rangy striker, Cynthia Calvillo is not that kind of fighter. She's much more grappling base. I think that, I mentioned this when she fought Chukasian, I think that she, I feel like she thinks her striking is a lot better than it actually is. But, I am interested to see what could happen if this fight goes to the ground, because Andrade is going to have a big advantage in terms of power and in the stand-up. But she's not somebody who adjusts and change her fighting style to suit. She's going to try and brawl, going to try and get into that takedown, and then control you with the ground and pound. It's always been the same way with Jessica Andrade every time she's fought. And if she does get that takedown, and Calvillo ends up on her back, we've all heard these stories about how great Cynthia's ground game is. I would be interested to see that jiu-jitsu match between the two of them. Yeah, that's definitely going to be her way to win the fight. I think the striking is just going to be a little too dangerous for her. Calvillo is improving her striking. We saw her outbox um, Jessica I pretty soundly at the 125-pound weight class. But then we saw her really struggle with Chukagian at range. We saw her struggle to get her takedowns going versus Caitlin Chukagian. And... Calvillo is probably going to have to end up on top to win here. I don't see her being able to win on the feet. Uh, I think she's just going to be in too much danger for that power punch from Andrade. So we're going to see Calvillo shooting. And Andrade isn't known for, like, immaculate takedown defense. She can be taken down. I mean, Valentina Shevchenko put a wrestling clinic on her. Um, but against, you know, the... The, the top five in her weight class, she usually can defend a few takedowns. So it's going to be interesting to see how this fight plays out. Um, Calvillo winning via grappling is on the table, but I still got to pick Andrade just because, as I mentioned earlier, her, her margins are huge. She can lose a, a wide portion, a portion of the fight and then turn it around in a moment's notice. So uh, I'll be picking Andrade, but not really a fight I'm looking forward to. I would be intrigued if it does go to the ground. But outside of that, I think that Andrade is... Andrade is a better striker. She's by a long way the more powerful of the two women. Um, but I don't think this is as... I, I remember when this fight was announced and a lot of people were saying, God, what are they doing with Calvillo? This is just going to be a massacre. I actually think Cynthia has played this very smart because if she does win this fight, there's no question. She's going to be fighting for the belt next. And if she loses and it goes the way a lot of people expect and Shevchenko beats Lauren Murphy... Cynthia only needs to win one fight and she's going to be right back into the title mix. And I could see her beating someone like a, like a Viviani, for example, because I could see someone of that sort of ilk being matched against her. 
Yeah, I'm not so sure if it's, she's an immediate title shot. I think, um, like you said, Viviana is probably right up there. So, um, I, I don't know. I, I have a hard time theorizing on what's going to happen in the future from this fight. I just, I just don't care enough to really think about that type of stuff. I can see you're really infused. So, how about this then? So, we're both picking um, Andrade to win this one. Yeah, I'd say so. Uh, and I'm going to say, I don't think that she's going to finish Cynthia Calvillo. I think Andrade is going to take a sort of a 30-27 decision. Yeah, interesting. Um, I'll, I'll go 29-28 decision for her. How do you see Calvillo getting the upper hand in one of those rounds? Just a takedown, getting on top. Um, you know, like I said, Andrade's takedown defense is is you know, penetratable. <laughs> so, uh, Calvio could get a, I think she will get a takedown or two. It's just a matter of what she's going to do with them. And I don't think Calvio will do too much. I could tell you weren't really too infused about that fight. Let's see if we can change your mind with fight number two on the card. It's Curtis Blades taking on Jarzinho Royce and strike. So two top 10 heavyweights in the second fight of the main card. Bookmakers odds for this one, again, fairly one-sided. Curtis Blades, minus 310. You can get Jarzino Royston Strike at plus 250. Um, and two guys as well who I sort of feel, uh, if you could sort of put it this way, a bit in heavyweight limbo. Bearing in mind sort of like the logjam at the top of the weight class, all expectations being that it's going to be Angano versus Sevil Garn, uh, possibly taking place around February, depending on who you speak to. And I think as well, it's an especially important fight for Curtis Blades because we saw what happened last time out. He was dominating Derek Lewis, beating him in the stand-up, and then that big uppercut from hell knocks him out. Now he's in a situation where he's on the final fight of his UFC contract, and he's again taking on yet another big, powerful striker. Yeah, well, you said... You hope I had some more interest in this fight. Unfortunately, I do not. I hate this fight. I hate this matchup. I don't know who put this fight together and thought it would be a good fight. Um, Rosenstrike has terrible defensive grappling. He does not really know what wrestling is. When he gets on his back, he doesn't know how to get up. And he's facing the best wrestler in the division. Um, you know, maybe right up there, maybe one, number one, number two with uh, Alexander Romanov. They, they should have done Curtis Blades versus Romanov. That would have been a lot more fun. But, I mean, it's just such a basic matchup. I mean, it's can Blades take him down? If he can, that's the fight. I think, honestly, one takedown from Blades, and he is going to stay on top the entire round. If he wants to land a lot of ground and pound, he will. And Rose Strike's going to be so tired and depleted after round one of that, he's probably not going to have the knockout power or the speed left to knock out Blades in rounds two or three. I mean, I know he did come back and win the uh, Overeem fight in in the later rounds, but he also was out-wrestled soundly by Overeem for the first three rounds of that fight. So it, it's Rosenstrike knockout or Blades wrestling clinic. There are only two options for this fight. So if you like Rosenstrike, don't bet his money line. Just bet his knockout because there's no other way that he can win this fight. He's not going to win a decision. He doesn't know any submissions. Um, so it's either going to be Blades domination via wrestling clinic or Rosenstrike knockout. I'm picking Blades via wrestling for sure. I mean, like I said, one takedown and that's the fight. Um, so I'm picking Blades by either 30-24 or a TKO. And I'm especially concerned as well with Voice and Strike because I don't think the Voice and Strike has the best conditioning either. So when you have a big 260-pound guy in Curtis Blades 
holding you down for what could be a 15 minutes. I don't think that's going to end up very well for Strike. And as you mentioned before, can you see him scrambling back to his feet? I can't see that. Yes, you could say he could get that big first round knockout, but the guys who knocked out Curtis Blades are Francis Ngannou and Derek Lewis, who have otherworldly sort of FU power. Strike has power, but he's much more of a technician. He likes to set up and create his sort of angles to get those big shots. And I think Curtis Blades has seen those kind of strikers before and he's dealt with them very comfortably. Yeah, I would say that Rosenstrike is a better counter fighter than Derek Lewis's, and even Derek Lewis was able to time a counter on on Blades. And you know, we deserve to make fun of Blades a little bit for that one because he, he fainted that takedown for like 15 seconds before he finally decided to shoot it, and then finally shot it and just got absolutely stiff stiffened up. Um, you know, that was that was hilarious to see. And Rosenstrike could possibly do something similar to that, but. I imagine Blades has, you know, taken some time to, to perfect his entries. And if he shoots a low single leg, low single, how, how the hell is Rosenstrike stopping that? He, he's not. So I think Blades is going to get this fight to the floor and, and dominate. The big issue Curtis Blades has, and you sort of touched on it there, we all know how good his wrestling is. But the issue is he doesn't mask his takedowns very well at all. Because, like, if you if you look at, say, Daniel Cormier, for example, one of the great things that DC was able to do was he could switch instantly from striker to wrestler. So good one-two combinations and then dive in for that single leg. With Curtis Blade, it's almost like, okay, I'm striking now, throw punches, and now I'm wrestling. There's no fluidity between the two. And the thing yeah, is, as well, I don't, I, mean, you... I don't think Curtis Blade is that bad of a striker. He was piecing up no. Derek Lewis on the feet. He beat JDS in what was basically a boxing match. I think if he had more confidence in his striking and could mix it up in the way that he, in the way that someone like Cormier did, I could see him yeah, being a real threat. Yeah, really good point. I mean, just look at the way they fought um, Lewis. I mean, like you said, DC effortlessly flows or effortlessly th- flows through that striking into the grappling, and Blades is kind of stuck in, like in those two realms, or he's striking, he's striking, and then he has to transition. It's just not fluid. So um, I-, I don't think Blades is going to be completely out of his-, his depth here if the fight stays standing. He is a decent striker, like you mentioned, but why keep the fight standing to give Rosenstrike any chance of winning? Um, I think we're going to see a Blades takedown within like 60 seconds here. Both of us are expecting Curtis Blades to win this one. I'm going to go with a unanimous decision. You seem to be favoring towards sort of maybe a ground and pound knockout. Yeah, yeah, I'll go with TKO. I mean, Rosenstrike, he, he can't get off his back. He can't. It's a fact that he can't. So, I mean, if Blades throws ground and pound, Rosenstrike won't be able to prevent it. Um, so if, if Blades wants to finish, he will. If he wants to lay on top for a 30-24, he will. So I'll side with TKO. Let's say Strike does win this fight, though. With Curtis Blades, that would be a second straight loss. It's the last fight on his contract. He's had a lot of clashes with Dana White and, the, and that fly as well, presumably. What was that, John? No, no, I said get him out of here. Get him <laughs> out of here. No, 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 no one wants to see heavyweights wrestle. Just and, get and him out. And that was the question. Does Curtis Blades maybe get cut if he loses this fight? Yeah, I hear Bellator has tremendous uh, healthcare plans, so I'm sure Curtis Blades would get hooked up on that and, and enjoy himself over there. Uh, Spe- those are my thoughts. Speaking of Bellator, 
There's a lot of people who maybe thought that this was a Bellator fight when it was first announced. Nick Diaz back in action for the first time since 2015, taking on Robbie Lawler. Now, this is a rematch between a fight which took place in 2004 at UFC 47. Of course, that fight was Chuck Liddell versus Tito Ortiz. And I think the core main was Andrei Arlovsky versus Cabbage Coera, which is a sign of just how far back we're going with this one. It's safe to say, though, this is the fight that most people are looking forward to. A lot of people, when they heard this fight were announced, oh my god, Nick Diaz is going to be back. He's taking on Robbie Lawler. Great wild brawl. We all remember what they did first time around. But be let's look at some facts. Robbie Lawler hasn't won a fight in his past four. Nick Diaz hasn't won a fight since 2011. If you crossed out the word UFC and put the word Bellator, I think a lot of people would be crapping on this fight a hell of a lot more. Yeah, and let's let's also look at some facts about how, how their past few rounds have gone. Um, Lawler lost all five rounds to RDA, all five to Colby, all three to Magny. Um, they get finished in round one versus Askren in a controversial fight. Nick Diaz lost five rounds to GSP, five rounds to Silva. So uh, Diaz lost 10 rounds in a row. GSP lost, uh, I mean, sorry, uh, Robbie lost 15 rounds in a row, basically. Um, so that's a that's a pretty troubling statistic. Um, and another thing is, why is this five rounds, Carl? Why the hell is this fight five rounds? I think it's Can just, you answer that? I think it's just the sort of Diaz sort of sort of clause, as it were, in the fight contract. Because the Diaz I brothers guess. have always been sort of like notorious for how good their conditioning is, so make it five rounds, make it a bit of a chance. I'm surprised like there's always been murmurings of Nick coming back. Those stories have been going around for years. My question is, why have they chosen now to do it? Well, um, probably has something to do with Nick Diaz being sober for the first time in a few years. I mean, if you follow Nick Diaz on Instagram, I think every day for about four years, from 2014 to 2019, this guy made about 25 Instagram stories a day of him just getting blackout drunk in Las Vegas clubs, all, all hours of the night. I mean, it's hilarious the way this guy films. I mean, he's always holding the camera like above here. He's not saying a single word. He just like silently films what's going on around him. And, uh, you know, he, he did party, go to clubs for four or five years straight. And now it seems like since the pandemic hit, maybe he stopped clubbing and partying as much. And now he wants to fight again. But, I mean, if you listen to the way the guy talks, if you think about, you know, all of the the – the damage he's been doing to his body, drinking every night for the past five years. I mean, it, it's it's possibly very scary to imagine what Diaz is going to look like. But, I mean, we here's an, here's something. We have to theorize on what Diaz is going to look like. We're, how bad is Diaz going to look? While we know how bad Robbie Lawler could look. I mean, we have seen Robbie Lawler in the cage. But we've also seen Lawler against, like, top seven, top eight welterweights. We haven't seen him fight anyone uh, nearly on Diaz's level. The closest thing would be Ben Askren. And he had, you know, he picked up Askren and slammed him on his head, almost won that fight. So this is going to be a massive step down in competition for Robbie Lawler here. But with the with the way the guys looked, I mean, it's hard to put much confidence in him. I mean, he looked 
you know, so uninspired versus Magny just getting dominated in those fights. And, um, you know, I'll pass it back to you. We can keep talking about this one. We're not done yet, but, uh, I'll, you know, we'll take turns. It's a good thing you mentioned the Neil Magny fight because that's a fight that I'm personally leaning towards Nick winning this one. And it's mainly because of what we saw against Neil Magny because Luke Thomas always says that there's two signs that a fighter is past it. The first is their chin just completely goes. They try getting involved in these brawls and just the slightest touch knocks them down. That was sort of like the Chuck Liddell way. And the other way is what we saw arguably with Yoel Romero last night where a fighter just becomes too scared to throw back. Like the Tyron woodley Yoel Romero approach. That was the Robbie Law that we saw when he fought against Neil Magny. Somebody who just was so unwilling to try and throw back and was just happy to be dominated. And I could very easily see that happening again with Nick Diaz. Bearing in mind the traditional sort of Diaz style of just swarming opponents coming forward all the time. I could just see a situation where Nate is just throwing these sort of wild haymakers, targeting the body and Robbie just taking it all. Yeah, I mean, he is still durable. He can still take shots. But like you said, he kind of wilts a little bit. I mean, you saw it in that Magni fight. Once he started getting taken down, well, one one thing about Neil Magni is that somehow every single one of his fights, people decide to clinch with him or shoot a takedown on him. And he's great at, at stuffing those takedowns, at turning the clinch, and then getting his own advantage in the clinch. And the fight was kind of close at distance for a minute or two. And then Robbie Lawler decided to shoot a takedown got easily reversed, got taken down, and then the last 13 or 14 minutes of the fight was Magny just absolutely dominating him in the re- in the wrestling against the cage. And um just very worrisome performance. Like you said, I agree with what uh what you said about him just not having that fight left in him. He just doesn't really trust his output. Um but one thing I'll say is even though the fight was 17 years ago, I think we could maybe take something from it. While if you look at Nick Diaz in that fight, he kind of fought the same way he did throughout his entire career, where he's plodding forward in that southpaw stance, walking with his hands, looking to throw punches. Um, he threw a lot of knees in that first Lawler fight. Hasn't really kept that up through his career. If you watch his most recent fight against Anderson Silva, it was pretty much 99% uh, punches and leg kicks, outside leg kicks and punches from the southpaw stance. So he doesn't have a, a big varied offense. Um, and he hasn't really changed much over his career. While Robbie Lawler actually has changed a good amount, you saw him be very uncomfortable with southpaws in that fight 17 years ago. He's gotten much more used to fight southpaws. And, you know, I think we're going to see Nick Diaz largely be the same style, the same fighter he was 17 years ago, while we're actually going to see uh, Lawler be the much more accustomed fighter to, to making those adaptations from the fight. I mean, it's hard to, you know, it's hard to really think about if, is that 17-year-old fight going to be relevant. Um, I think it's it's somewhat relevant. I mean, it is the two of them fighting, so you do have to take it into consideration. Um, but I'm not really relying on the fight to look uh, a similar way. I don't think that the Diaz is going to have an easy time outboxing and hurting Lawler with punches as they did the first time. Do you think this absence from Nick is going to be an advantage or a disadvantage? On one hand, there's all the questions about ring rust. Um, Obviously, he hasn't competed since 2015, so that's maybe a factor. But at the same time, because he hasn't been in the cage, he hasn't been having those wars in the same way that Robbie has. Uh, I think it's advantage for sure because, I mean, 
what you just said, 2015. Imagine if Nick Diaz fought Robbie Lawler in 2015. I mean, Lawler would have put him in a body bag. That was Lawler's uh, absolute best back then. And he has really, you know, faded over the past six years. So he's getting Lawler at a good time. And, you know, one thing I have written down about this fight is that it's very likely to go the distance. Um, the bookies currently have this fight uh, over on FanDuel, one of the sportsbook I use. They have this fight slated as a three-round fight. So the odds aren't entirely accurate, but it's looking like the fight going the distance is going to be plus money. It's going to be an underdog, which means the fight ends by finish more than 50% of the time. I think that's ridiculous. I mean, how the hell does this fight end more than 50% of the time by finish? Uh, neither guy has been known for being a huge one-punch knockout fighter. Um, both guys are pretty durable. And, you know, they're at 185 now. They're not going to probably carry as much power up. They're going to be not cutting as much weight. They're going to be able to take more damage. I don't think either guy is finishing either here. I think it's going to be likely a five-round fight of competitive striking exchanges. And I do kind of lean towards Nick Diaz. Uh, edging those striking exchanges just because we ha we have seen such bad things from Lawler lately in the distance striking that I think that Diaz could come in even off that six-year layoff and come in and outbox, outstrike uh, Lawler over the full five rounds. This fight is basically devil you know versus devil you don't. We've seen how bad Robbie Lawler has been in his past couple of fights. We haven't seen what Nick Diaz has looked like at all. And that's basically what's deciding it. Are you going with your gut or going with your logic? Yeah, I mean, early on in, when this fight was announced, I was kind of leaning towards Lawler, but re-watching his fights, and I think people kind of overreact to these long layoffs. I mean, we just saw with Misha Tate, right? I mean, she the odds were kind of Yeah, the odds were close in that fight against Renal. Meanwhile, it was, it was a hand-picked matchup for her to win, and she looked like she didn't take a step off. So that's entirely possible that Diaz looks similar here. I mean, it is possible for him to look like the same fighter um, versus Anderson Silva 60 years ago. I mean, he was—I mean, he's not a very athletically reliant fighter, right? The guy just stands there, plots forward, and throws leg kicks and punches. So it's a style that actually does age well as you get older. So— I'm going to be picking Nick Diaz. I'll pick him like 49-46 Diaz decision here. But nothing would surprise me in this fight except for it ending by finish. I think my official position on this fight is bet the goes the distance, bet the over four and a half rounds, bet the fight to go longer because I just don't see these guys having the power to finish each other. I'm in a very similar boat. Uh, I'm picking Diaz to win this one. Um, probably by the same... Uh, probably by the same scorecard as well 49 46 i can see maybe robbie having i can see robbie maybe taking one of the later or one of the early rounds i should say as nick sort of like mm. tries to find his feet but the longer this fight goes the more we play into nick territory because even though you might have some question marks about nick and some of his recreational habits the guy does remain in fantastic shape he does triathlons pretty much every day so He's got that going for him. Conditioning is always going to be a great Diaz trait. Yep. I agree. I also want to point out as well, one of the interesting facts I've read about this is Nick Diaz and Robbie Lawler are two of three guys who fought in Pride in their career. So we're starting to see those sort of like last remnants of Pride. That are still in the UFC, right? That are still in the UFC, yeah. So it's Nick Diaz, Robbie Lawler, and I think Shogun Hewitt is the other one. 
So it's nice if yeah. you're an old school Pride fan that we're getting two old Pride guys fighting one another. And um, Nick Diaz, famous famous guy for quoting wolf tickets, you know, very well could be wolf tickets for this fight with two near senior citizens fighting each other. It's in vogue. It's in vogue right now. Holyfield versus Belfort. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know, right? Senior citizen boxing championships. Core main event time now, and we are going to the women's flyweight division. Valentina Shevchenko making the sixth defense of a title. This time, she is taking on the third seed, Lauren Murphy. So Shevchenko hoping to try and equal Ronda Rousey's record for the most title defenses for a female fighter. Um, before we actually get onto the fight itself, though, I want to take a little bit of time to talk about Lauren Murphy. Now, you know me, John. I love a good story when it comes to <laughs> MMA. And in my opinion, Lauren Murphy has one of the best stories over the past couple of years. Because if you know Lauren Murphy's background, she had a bit of a troubled young adulthood. She took up jiu-jitsu uh, basically on a whim. I think she accompanied her son to a class, fell in love with sport and took it up as a pastime. She makes it into the UFC, has a couple of struggles early on when she fights a bantamweight and moves down to flyweight basically as a sort of last resort to turn around her career. She's now won five fights in a row. Admittedly, some of them have been very fortunate. And now at 38 years old, she's fighting for the title. Now, regardless of what you think of Lauren Murphy, and I know there's a lot of people that don't, aren't too keen on her, that's a fantastic story to actually get this opportunity. Yeah, it's not bad. I know you are a, a sucker for the stories. You've been you've been kind of manifesting this this Lauren Murphy title shot for the past year, I think. But <laughs> um, and you know, I I do kind of like Murphy. Um, I'll say two nice things about her, and that's um, she's been kind of a money trainer past few fights. You know, winning as an underdog several times, a few times where she was in closely lined fights, but ended up looking like a huge favorite uh, versus Shakarova and versus Roxanne. And the other thing is, I think she really understands. Uh, as I call it, the meta of MMA, um, where her fight against Andrea Lee is a perfect example of of round sequencing, I'll call it, is where you can lose the first four minutes of a round. But as long as you end that last minute strong, like if you end that last minute with a takedown and some top time, you can erase that four minutes of the of the early round and steal the round off of that one action alone. And Lauren Murphy did that exact formula versus Andrea Lee. I thought she lost about 12 or 13 minutes of that fight. And then ended up winning a decision just because she was hitting those late takedowns. So I think her her coaches have some sort of code with her or something that were 60 seconds, 30 seconds left in a round. She's going to be shooting takedowns. And that's what won her the fight. Those controversial fights that you just mentioned, the split decisions over Calderwood and over Lee, those late takedowns and top time is what won her those fights. So I like Murphy. I've won money on her in her current run. Um, but, you know, unfortunately... She is kind of drawing dead here, in my opinion. And I'll pass it back to you before we start talking about the actual matchup itself, uh, Carl. Yes, I'm in a very similar board. It, it, quite ironic, considering a nickname is Lucky. Well, Lauren Murphy has had a lot of luck during this run. Because I checked some of the stats. All of the media who were scoring the fight for Andrea Lee, I think there were like 12 or 13 of them, all of them scored it in favor of Lee. And of course, Murphy got the decision. And then I think 11 of the 17 who scored, who judged the fight between her and Giorgio, 11 of the 17 scored it for Coldwood. So she has been very fortunate with some of these decisions, as good as the run of form has been. Um, 
But there's a big jump between fighting Andrea Lee and Joanne Caldwood and fighting Valentina Shevchenko. And I'll pose this sort of question yeah. to you. We've seen some good performances from Shevchenko, especially during this flyweight run. Was the Andrade performance the best we've seen from her in the UFC? I would say yes, just because um, it was probably the best opponent, the most dangerous opponent that she's fought. I mean, I think um, the Jessica I fight might have been a little more flawless um, and obviously ending with a much more emphatic, perfect knockout. But for her to be fighting a former champion, a woman who actually has finishing power, who has uh, multi-threat in terms of takedowns and striking, for her to just decimate her so easily, I think it probably was her best performance. Um, and I suck at picking Shevchenko outcomes. I mean, I think I've been wrong in the past like three or four in a row. Every time I pick her to win by decision, she finishes. Every time I pick her to win by finish, she goes to decision. So uh, I'm no good at picking the outcomes here. So whatever I end up picking, uh, maybe you guys should just bet on the opposite of that. The big thing that stood out for me with Shevchenko uh, fighting a flyweight is how much more comfortable she is grappling. Because if you go back and you watch her bantamweight fights, like she was tiny for that weight class. Go back and watch her versus Holly. And the size differential between the two is ridiculous. But because she's fighting yeah. girls who are around the, around the same sort of size, she's much more comfortable grappling. She's got some fantastic judo throws and judo trips. And... I think there was a lot of people that maybe sort of painted Shevchenko as just a striker. And that's one thing that's definitely changed. Yeah, definitely been looking a lot, hit a lot more takedowns in her fights lately. Um, you know, she hit seven versus uh, Andrade, which is impressive considering it was only like a seven minute fight. But starting to think about where Murphy can present a threat for her um, in the striking, I don't think it's going to be the Murphy's range. I mean, if Andrea Lee and Joanne Calderwood were having success against Murphy, I think Shevchenko is probably going to butcher her on the feet. And that leads the offensive wrestling being the other path for Murphy. And Murphy can hit takedowns. She knows how to time them, as I mentioned. But Shevchenko's takedown defense is not bad enough to the point where I think that Murphy can really have sustained success on top. Um, we did see Shevchenko in her most vulnerable moment in the past three or four years versus Jennifer Maya when she got taken down and put on bottom there. But I mean, that was kind of a, a weird random moment of a fight. You know, she did win that fight 49, 46 won every other minute of that fight besides that one moment where she got taken down. And I think Maya is a little bit bulkier and heavier than Murphy. Um, and that's why I think Maya was able to get on top and win that one round. But I don't see Murphy having that same ability. I, I, I really don't see anywhere where Murphy is going to pose a threat to Shevchenko. I think Shevchenko is, you know, just a little bit better everywhere. And, you know, I guess Murphy winning three out of five rounds with her top position is going to be her best chance at winning, but that seems extremely low outcome. Um, what are the numbers on the, the INC predictions for this one, Carl? Yes, I'm glad you mentioned that because we always run uh, opinion polls on the community tab uh, for each of the title fights and main events that the UFC do. Um, at the moment, Lauren Murphy has 2% of people picking her to win. <laughs> Now, to put that into perspective, Felicia Spencer, in her title fight, had 10%. And Jennifer Meyer, which was the second lowest, had 5%. So only 2% of people are picking Lauren Murphy to win this one. Is that people sort of doubting Lauren Murphy's ability or praising Shevchenko's? 
I think 1% of that 2% is people just being like, oh, this will be funny if I click this. <laughs> um, I think only 1% of that 2% are people actually believing that she can win the fight. Um, I mean, I guess, like you said, you the one thing – you have a good outcome on this fight or outlook on this fight because even though you're not interested in, in, in how the matchup is going, you're looking at something positive. Oh, Murphy worked her way up to a title shot. She won four fights in a row. She got a title shot. That is the the one you know promising moment you can take from this fight But because as a matchup, I just see Murphy having nothing for Shevchenko. And I like Lauren Murphy, so I hope she doesn't get hurt. I hope she, you know, maybe gets submitted instead of getting her face smashed in like Andrade did. But um, I will be picking Shevchenko finish. You know, like I said, I know I suck at this. I'm not. Uh-uh. So if you're betting on this fight, you might want to bet on Shevchenko decision because I suck at picking them. But I'll pick Shevchenko finish. I'm going to be picking a Shevchenko decision. Um, nice. Shevchenko often alternates between having these sort of emphatic big wins <laughs> and choosing something quite dull. So we saw a head yeah. kick Jessica Rye and then she had that ball with Carmouche. Same with Chukajian and Jennifer Maya. Andrade was a fantastic performance and I can see Shevchenko maybe playing it safe once again. And sort of a, a job done performance. 50-45, bish bash bosh, no harm and it's move like, on to the It's next. like she, she doesn't want to build up too, moment, too much momentum. She's like, oh, I just finished my last opponent you know in front of a full arena in florida um let's let's make this fight as boring as possible and win via wrestling for five rounds so that's entirely possible um with these three five round fights my worst fear is all three go the full five rounds and i favor two of them pretty heavily to go the full five so let's hope shevchenko can put a, put us out of our mercy and uh get this fight card over before 2 a.m eastern time well, I'll be watching it the uh, night afterwards because that would be, what, 4 or 5 o'clock my time, and I just can't yeah. stay up that late. Um, Not one of the cards you're staying up late for. Yeah. Let's assume that Shevchenko does win this fight, and at the moment the bookmakers have a minus 1,400, so they certainly believe she's going to. What do we do next with the flyweight division? Who is next for that belt? Because I'm looking at some of the people who are <laughs> in sort of like ranked 1 through to 10 in that weight class, and if you take away people who have lost and you take away people who Shevchenko have beaten, the next ranked is Alexa Grasso at number 10, as a fighter coming on a winning streak who hasn't faced Shevchenko yet. Yeah, I hate when you ask these type of questions, honestly, because I couldn't care less about what happens next in the women's flyweight division. I do like Alexa Grasso. Um, I mean, she probably has the best chance out of anyone because she probably is one of the, uh, the best boxers in the women's 125 division, she, I mean, look, looking up and down, I think she is the best boxer in the division. So she probably has the best chance. You know, her takedown defense, not great. You know, Suarez, some other women were able to drag Grasso down and out grapple her. Shevchenko probably does the same, but uh, Grasso is the only woman who I can actually imagine like winning some realm of a fight against Shevchenko, and that would be the striking. So, um, but it's a shame that she's ranked number 10. Uh, I'd like to see, you know, Grasso versus Araujo next or something like that. And I that think she's been booked against Giorgio. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, yeah, I think, like I said, Araujo versus Grasso would have been a little bit better. That could be a number one title fight, honestly. 
It is time for us to talk about our main event of the evening. We are going to the featherweight division and it's our first title defense in this division since UFC 251. Alex Volkanovsky is taking on Brian Ortega. We've had 13, 14 weeks of the Ultimate Fighter building up to this fight card and I think Alex Volkanovsky finds himself in a very interesting position because if you look at who the guy has beaten in his rise up the rankings, Chad Mendes, Max Holloway twice, Jose Aldo, he has beaten a who's who of some of the best featherweights the UFC have ever had. And yet we come into this fight with a lot of fans not giving him the appreciation he maybe deserves. Yeah, um, he is definitely underrated by fans. Um, some people somehow think that Max Holloway won that last fight. Um, I mean, Volkanovski he won rounds three, four, and five. I don't know how else to tell you, sadly. Um, even rounds one and two, Volkanovski was kind of controlling them before uh, Holloway landed those late knockdowns. Um, so, in my opinion, I saw Volkanovski controlling like 80% of that fight, where he looked like he was in control and winning the fight. And, you know, it's a fact that he did win seven or eight out of 10 rounds against Max Holloway, who, as we know, is one of the best fighters in the sport, who I believe is one of the best MMA fighters of all time. And for Volkanovski to soundly beat Max Holloway like that two times, um, that's as that's as impressive as a win gets in mixed martial arts. Um so he's definitely underrated coming into this fight because of that last decision. And uh, even the betting odds kind of reflect that. Um, Volkanovski around a 60% favorite. The last time this fight was supposed to happen, I recall seeing Volkanovski around minus 175, which is a little bit um, closer to 63 or 64%. So the fact that this fight's been postponed uh, you know, a few months um, – who got COVID? Was it Volkanovski who got COVID? I last think it was time? one of Volkanovski's, um, one of Volkanovski's coaching team. Yeah, so it seems like the, the odds have changed a, like a good three percent in this fight over the past few months, which might seem insignificant, but but in terms of a big betting market like a UFC main event, it is pretty significant. So you know, I don't think the past few months has changed anything uh, in favor of Ortega. So I'm not sure why the odds are changing, but uh, what are your opinion on the odds here? Volkanovski around 60%, Carl. That's the way I would go with it. Um, the community tab uh, where we've asked people to predict who they think is going to win each fight, they've got it around sort of 70-30. So they're much more fav favorable of Volkanovski compared to Brian Ortega. It's, I'm guessing that was a bike there. Yeah, yeah. It seems like we got a few motorcycle people in our neighborhoods, right? Ask them if they're uh, Volkanovski fans. Uh, yeah, they're actually uh, a part of a, a outlaw biker club, so I, I don't know if I'll be too friendly with them. But uh, I did not just incriminate them, so. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the things that maybe has been a factor in changing these odds is we saw what happened with Brian Ortega uh, last time out against Korean Zombie. There was a lot of people who wrote him off going into that fight. He hasn't fought for two years. He's fighting a guy who's in a great run of form in TKZ. I think most people on the community tab had Zombie. Uh, I think about 70-30 to win that one. And Brian Ortega just came into that fight completely transformed. His level of striking. I mean, Vulcan, like Ortega was never a bad striker. I think that's sort of a narrative that a lot of people have painted that he was just absolutely dominated by Max Holloway and oh my God, how awful he is. 
Go back and watch 231. Yes, he got pieced up in that fourth round, but for the first three rounds, he was holding his own against Max Holloway. It's just Max's conditioning and output is so good, it eventually wears people down. But what he did do was he refined his strike. He became less of a brawler and more of a technician. And I think a lot of people maybe thought that if he's been able to do that in two years, add another year to that, how good could he possibly get be when he fights Volkanovski? Yeah, um, great point. You brought up the, th the thing that I think could have maybe influenced this line is that uh, Chan Sung Jung fought Ige. He looked pretty good, got a win. And now that kind of, that win Ortega has over him has actually aged a little bit better. So maybe that's what's influencing the line a little bit here. Um, but yeah, Ortega is not a bad striker at all. I mean, I think he he did struggle early on in his career. He kind of was the nail for a first first uh, few of his fights where he would get beat up for the first few rounds and then come back strong in round three. That happened to him several fights in a row: the Guida fight, the Moicano fight. Both those were big comeback round three finishes for him. Um, and then he had those two fights where, you know, he was losing, did come back. And then he had two pretty, you know, clean finish performances over Swanson, over Edgar. Uh, then he obviously got destroyed by Max Holloway and then had a great bounce back win over Chan Sung Jung. Um, I don't really agree with Ortega getting the title shot off of one win, but the UFC featherweight division is kind of in a weird place right now where there's no clear uh, number one contender. It seemed like the UFC didn't want to do Volkanovski Holloway again. So I sort of understand why they're doing this. Um, and uh, Ortega does have a window to win, I would say. I, I can't see Ortega winning three out of five rounds to win a decision here. I do see Ortega needing the finish, but... You know, he's that's a, a role he's comfortable playing. He is a good finisher. He can hurt you with strikes in the feet. Uh, and he also can submit you with all types of submissions on the ground. He is a tremendous grappler. But he is not really a great wrestler. He's not known for getting the fight to the floor, uh, having great top position, and then finding a submission. He's kind of known for finding submissions in transition, in chaotic scrambles, snatching onto a submission, a guillotine. He's not really the, the type of guy to wrestle you and to you know, slowly, methodically get that submission. So I don't see Ortega being able to wrestle. I don't see him being able to win three out of five rounds. So he's probably going to have to land a big strike on the feet, hurt Volkanovski, and then, uh, you know, turn that into a finish, whether it be with uh, a bunch of strikes and a flurry or snatching it onto a submission and getting Volk uh, in a, a submission. So I see Ortega needing to win inside the distance. And if the fight goes the full five rounds, uh, I see the better, the more adaptable fighter in Volkanovski uh, being able to, you know, decipher that information to make reads, to make adjustments, and to win the fight as it goes on. So if it goes five rounds, I really favor Volkanovski to win the decision. I'm in the same boat, and I am picking Volkanovski to win this one by decision. But I'm in a very similar boat to you. I, Brian Ortega is what I would call a sleeper. I think there is a lot of traits that he has that could cause Volkanovski problems. Like, Volkanovski isn't going to want to wrestle the guy because if you try taking him down, you're entering Brian's world. He loves jiu-jitsu, and I could very easily see him getting a submission off his back. So Volkanovski's not going to go down that path. So it's going to be purely a kickboxing match. And we have seen in the past that there have been people there who have caused Volkanovski problems. Chad Mendes dropped him. Max Holloway dropped him twice. Does Brian Ortega have that level of striking to do that to him? I'm not 100% sure, 
but he is a much better striker than people give him credit for. So on paper, there are a lot of elements to Brian Ortega that could cause Volkanovski issues. I just, I've seen CKB do wonders with game planning though. Like he, like CKB identified, hey, Max Holloway doesn't like these leg kicks and they hammered that home in that first fight and he got the win. And we've seen that before with Adesanya and game planning for other fighters as well. This is a very good training camp. They'll have obviously found something in Brian Ortega that makes them think we can easily get that done. So I am picking Volkanovski by decision. I think they're going to they're gonna out-game plan Ortega. Um, one thing I'll say about the uh, the wrestling, I do think that Volkanovski could take Ortega down, and he might here. I don't think that... Um, I think that... Alexander Volkanovsky is good enough to avoid some sort of guard submission or some sort of, of guillotine. I think he's a good enough of a wrestler, smart enough of a fighter that he can get this fight into the clinch and hit a takedown and stand in top position safely if he wants to. And Volkanovsky is really underrated because he's so good at fighting in so many different ranges. I mean, the guy can fight so well at distance, as you said, outstruck uh, Max Holloway, picked him apart with those leg kicks, has tremendous boxing. He's also great at getting the fight in the clinch, holding you against the cage, landing clinch strikes like he did versus Jose Aldo. And he also can wrestle you, take you down, land good ground and pound like he did to Darren Elkins, Jeremy Kennedy, Shane Young, several guys that he's out-wrestled in the UFC. Not really, you know, level the level of fighter as Ortega, but... Volkanovski is really uh, excellent at every range of MMA, and that's why he's going to be so difficult to win. But looking at a bet for this fight, if you like Ortega here, as I mentioned, I do think he needs a finish to win. And as I mentioned, the later the fight goes, I think the more it favors Volkanovski. So if you like Ortega here, Ortega in rounds one, two, or three is plus 440. I think that's probably better than his inside the distance line. Um, I think that if Ortega is winning the fight, it is going to be by finish in the first three rounds. Uh, likely by land in a big uh, punch, a big elbow on uh, Volkanovski and uh, translating that into a finish. But I don't see it happening. I see Volkanovski diffusing um, Ortega, you know, in very intelligent fashion, picking him apart at all different ranges and eventually winning the fight by a pretty dominant decision. I'm not expecting it to be an extremely exciting fight. So I will pick Volkanovski 49-46 decision. What result do you think the UFC would want more? Because all roads seem to indicate that Max Holloway, if he gets through Yair Rodriguez, is going to be fighting for the belt next. Do you think the UFC would want him versus Volkanovski free to put a line in the sand and say, hey, this guy is the best between the two? Or the arguably fresher Max Holloway versus renewed striking ace Brian Ortega? UFC definitely, definitely wants Ortega to win. 100,000%. That's why they gave him the title shot off a of one win. Um, you know, after the after the the last fight, the Holloway and Volkanovski fight, uh, during the embedded, you, you see a conversation between Dana and Matt Serra saying that they thought that Max won all five rounds. Um, so, I mean, they, they they definitely have a preference for Max Holloway over there. Um, and they would much rather see Ortega win, get Volkanovski out of the picture a little bit, and then uh, have a, kind of a, an easy matchup to get Holloway the belt back because uh, Holloway is definitely the most popular UFC featherweight, and I think that the UFC wants the belt in his hands, and the UFC certainly does not like Alexander Volkanovski. Well, well said, John. I'm, I'm in a very similar boat. I think 
it's Volkanovsky is in a lot of ways a victim of circumstance because he's he's not American because he has that sort of a very sort of safe style he just does everything very well but he's not a yep. specialist in any sort of area and I think that's one of the things that the UFC I, I don't think really that doesn't appeal to them nope yep good very good points I mean he's kind of yeah much more methodical kind of yes. like GS, GSP-esque at, at times honestly but um you know, GSP obviously sold an, ama- an incredible amount of pay-per-views despite him having kind of a boring style. Volkanovski, not really uh, that type of proven pay-per-view draw. And in terms of pay-per-view buys, Carl, you know how we like to talk about that. I mean, without Nick Diaz, man, this card would be in trouble. I mean, without Nick Diaz, I could see this fight doing like 150000 maximum. With Nick, it'll probably go up to 250, 300,000, but I'm still expecting some pretty weak numbers from this card. I think the Nick pull is going to. I think the Nick pull is going to be a lot higher than people expect. I'm expecting about 400,000. Not bad, not bad, but I don't know. Six and a half years, I, I, I think, I think, I think that's long enough to where most people are kind of, they're like, Wait, Nick and Nate are two different people. Like they probably don't even like distinguish who they are at this point, um, because it's been so long. But um, you know, fun fun card. Um, it's got some fun, you know, kind of gimmick fights with the Nick Diaz fight. I'm excited to see Volkanovski back in action. Some solid prelims and um, not the greatest uh, pay per view card, but just hold on steady because the next two pay per views are insane, and uh, we're gonna definitely be looking forward to analyzing them in about a month. Two cards in two weeks. Are you going to be ready to do that, John? Two pay-per-views. Yeah, you know me. I'm, I'm always grinding out podcasts, so I'll be down for sure. Certainly hope so. Um, once again, John, if anybody wants to get in touch with you, wants to see any of your preview shows, where's the best place for people to find you? So you can follow me on Twitter at UFO underscore UFC and search me up on YouTube, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify at Martian MMA. Uh, thank you all for listening. Hope you all enjoyed this uh, this little preview show me and Carl did. And thank you again to Carl for having me on. And I'll see all you INC listeners later. Thank you very much for joining me, John. And yes, thank you very much for joining us for this uh, hour plus where we've been talking about UFC 266. As John's been hinting at, we're going to be back next month when we'll talk about UFC 267, which is Jan Blachowicz versus Glover Tshiva. And then that big Madison Square Garden card, uh, Jean Whaley and Rose Namajunas running it back again, alongside Kamara Usman and Colby Covington, Madison Square Garden, Michael Chandler versus Justin Gagey on that card as well. That's going to be an amazing show. Yeah, both cards are stacked. And we'll be back for that one in a month's time. This, however, has been the UFC 266 show. Thank you very much for joining us once again. This is the INC. Thank you for watching. We'll be back next week to do our recap of UFC 266. Bye-bye for now.